again for joining me on this episode of the Free Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. In this episode, I'm going to continue our look at whether or not the Bible is misogynistic or sexist. If you enjoy the content of this show, please consider partnering with us by becoming a sponsor on either patreon.com or by clicking on the become a sponsor link in the blog. Also, if you enjoy this content, why not head over to the Christus Victor Network and see what other podcast content is on offer there. Also, if you're new to apologetics and would like a helpful resource for answering a lot of atheistic objections all in one place, why not head over to Amazon and purchase a copy of my book, Measuring McAfee, Why One Atheist's Objection to Christianity Misses the Mark. There I respond to just a cornucopia of atheistic objections. Well, with those shameless plugs out of the way, let's dive right in and continue our exploration of the question, isn't the Bible misogynistic? Enjoy the show. That's a woman for you. I asked her to get my shirts whiter. What does she call this, whiter? Just focusing on Christianity in particular, there's nothing in there that talks about equality. If I were to stay committed to the words, ideas, and themes of the Bible, then I could no longer think of women as an equal, but as something lesser. And their only usefulness to me is their submission and their sexuality. That's just like a man. How can I get his shirts as white as he wants? Unless I bleach the life out of them. Either the Bible was meant to have a moment of comedy at the expense of women, or, or well, I can't think of an alternative. If we're gonna be true to scripture, then basically we would say, okay, when it's time for learning, that's a time for women to keep silent. Well, obviously, this is not decided by God, it's designed by man, by men, to be exact, masculine, uh, so that they can keep women in their place. That's easy. Uh, only a fool can't see that. That and the idea that if, if, if you wanted a wife, one of the best loopholes in the Bible was to go out and find a woman that you found attractive and rape her. Even if they want to ask that question to their husband, they should wait until they get home. You know, they should not end the service, be talking. And by the way, this is why I don't believe that women should say amen during the preaching either. Every woman needs to be herself at times. Your answer? Baking. Baking good, baking often. Somebody the other day asked me, they, uh, this, this reporter, he said, um, I heard that you... Um, you wouldn't, that it'd be a cold day in hell before you get your theology from a woman. He says, don't you kind of think that's demeaning to the genders? I says, ask Adam what he thought about getting his theology from a woman. Try to do something about your coffee. I hoped it would be better today. I said, it damned the whole world. I said, the reason your soul, sorry soul's going to hell is because a woman told Adam what God thinks about things. I wouldn't get my theology from a woman. So that getting rid of the idea of the supernatural is one step, only one, but a very important one. Perhaps the first one, perhaps the biggest one, on the road to emancipation. Hey 
In our last episode in this series, we began to discuss the approach to the issue of women in the Bible by exploring a theme that will be helpful in how we understand the biblical texts. We saw that something common in the scriptures is for God to inhabit certain cultural features of the ancient Near Eastern society, while at the same time acting or legislating in a clear intent to ultimately subvert them. We are going to now turn our attention and begin to discuss a biblical view of women and women and womanhood, but to even do that, we need to lay some sociological foundations that will serve as a kind of conceptual mooring. This will help us be sensitive to the historical and cultural context of the passages that we will be looking at. We need to lay this foundation not only before we look at a biblical theology of womanhood, but also before we can go back and address some of the quote-unquote problem passages that skeptics and anti-biblicists have attempted to say are sexist or misogynistic or oppressive to women or whatever. So, before I begin to do that, I'd like to take one apologetically important statement first that I received several comments about. I made a passing reference to the irony of the quote-unquote skeptic even making the moral evaluation of the Bible as being quote-unquote skeptic in the first place, and that they apparently believe that such a view would be immoral and that any modern person ought not to hold it. Since I've addressed the abject failure of any and all non-theistic worldviews to provide really any grounds for objective or real moral values or duties, nor really any moral or ethical evaluations that could be launched from such grounds, I will simply make the blanket statement here that I still think that the non-theist cannot coherently make moral objections against Christianity or the Bible. The instant they do so, they must presuppose a realm of objective moral values and duties. Yet, this is only possible if we live in a theistic cosmos. So, if they're right, then they're wrong. That objection has yet to be adequately handled by any non-theist I've spoken with. I'm still taking resumes on that, so to speak. However, the atheist may then try to say that they're not presenting any moral ills as an evaluation of Christianity or the Bible, but rather are making an internal critique of Christianity, that if Christians want to say that there are objective moral values and duties, then fine. But on that assumption, then it follows that if Christianity were true, then God is guilty of horrendous evils. Two responses can be given then. The first is what I addressed in the very first episode of this series on the so-called atrocities of the Bible in an episode entitled, Shall Not the Judge of All the Earth Do What is Just? The answer there is basically that the atheistic objection is only apparently powerful because they largely ignore most of the relevant features of Christianity and the Bible, but once we bring those factors in, the problem is instantly resolved. Thus, the objection is only apparently plausible if we accept their highly truncated and anemic version of Christianity to pass muster. If we do not, and insist on biblical concepts like holiness, righteousness, sin, etc., then the objection disintegrates like Jesus mythicists' arguments trying to pass peer review. That is, almost instantly. However, if we not only set aside the transcendental problem of morality on naturalism, but also set aside the critique that shows the vapidity of the truncated version of the Christian belief, we can still offer responses to these kinds of objections. We saw previously that the objection to the so-called slavery in the Bible relied heavily on abysmally bad misreadings and abject mishandlings of the texts. 
We will see this as well with the misogyny objection. In our next few episodes, we will start to address specific passages that anti-biblicists present and see what we can say in response. So in this episode, we'll start to lay the backdrop for those responses. Let us turn our attention then to a biblical theology of womanhood in the Bible. The first thing we need to look at, however, is what's called redemptive historical hermeneutics. As we've seen over and over again, is that one of the major objections to Christianity, and by major, I simply mean most common, even though it's one of the more trivial, is that Christians quote-unquote cherry-pick what they like and do not like in the Bible and work from there. This kind of objection reveals a level of ignorance about the Bible and Christian theology that just needs to be corrected. I want to say laughed at, but in charity, we're going to try to direct uh, directly uh, address it head-on. The relevance of this to our current episode is that it highlights a certain kind of hermeneutic that is important for us to understand in both. This is known as, like I said, the redemptive historical approach. This approach is the consistent approach to the Bible for a Christian because of our beliefs that all of the scriptures point us to Jesus Christ and that Jesus is actually the key to understanding what was written before and after him. I know that what I just said, but let me remind you here that I'm allowed to assume this. Remember, we're inside the world of an internal critique. We're in the world of an objection that is, in essence, saying, assuming Christianity is true, then look at this false conclusion that follows. What that does is allow me to speak from within the Christian position and use the features of Christianity to show that there is no contradiction or conflict. So if my atheistic audience wants to say, well, you're just assuming that the Bible does that, then I just need to remind them that, yeah, I'm allowed to by the canons of your own argument. If you want to present an internal critique, don't complain that I'm allowed to respond from within the system. So what this means is that we need to read the Old Testament in light of the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is what the New Testament refers to as the quote-unquote mystery that has been revealed. So many atheists read those passages and think that something mystical is being spoken of because that's the connotation of the word mystery in modern English. That it is, well, mysterious or mystical or something like that. The problem is, is that in the New Testament, specifically in Paul, when he uses the word mysterion, that's the Greek term, from which we derive the English word mystery, it's typically to drive home the point that it's no longer mysterious or unknown, that it was concealed in the Old Testament, but it has been revealed in the New, that what was under the shroud of darkness in the Old has been exposed and brought to light in the New. And what is this mystery? Is it some esoteric, secret Gnostic knowledge? Well, no. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ as the culmination of the law and the prophets and as the savior of the world to the Gentiles. So what was only shown to us in shadows and illusions and types in the Old Testament is fully revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We see this in Luke 24, which tells us about a conversation that some of his disciples had with Jesus on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. Luke 24, starting in verse 13, reads, Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. 
They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. End quote. For those who are not familiar with this nomenclature of Second Temple Judaism, to say Moses and the prophets was a way of saying, somewhat anachronistically, the Old Testament. Sometimes you'll see it called the Law and the Prophets. This doesn't mean that Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and so forth. Moses referred to the five books of Moses, also called the Pentateuch, the first five books, also called the Torah. The rest of the Old Testament was divided up into the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim, that is, the writings and the prophets. This is why it was called the Tanakh, that's the uh, kind of the anachronym, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, Tanakh. If you do a little study, you will also find that this doesn't follow our typical classification. So the Nevi'im, or the prophets, did contain many of what we now consider prophetic books, but it also included books like Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Well, by the time we arrive at Second Temple Judaism, at the, at the Second Temple period, the threefold division, while still present, had often given way to a twofold division of Moses and the prophets. That was just the way of saying all of it. So when Jesus opened up their understanding that Moses and the prophets were all about him, he was giving us a template for our hermeneutics, for how we are to read and understand the whole Bible. As the cliche goes, the answer is in the back of the book. In one sense, we get the entire story by reading from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22, from creation to recreation. We get the entire narrative arc by doing that. But in another more fundamental and meaningful sense, we are to read the story as a progressive unveiling of Jesus and the story of redemption. We then read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. We understand Old Testament themes in light of their fulfillment in New Testament themes. To borrow the phrase from theologian O. Palmer Robertson, we are to understand that it is the Christ of the covenants that controls how we are to understand the covenants themselves. 
Last time, I mentioned how one of the major themes of the Bible is that of subversion, and I gave several examples, such as primogeniture and poverty laws. Here now, I would like to start the argument that the same thing occurs with a whole host of other features. And the most relevant for this episode is that of gender and gender equality. So in order to understand the goal of subversion and to see how it is functioning, it's helpful if we are given a cheat sheet. If we are told what the ultimate ideal is. Thankfully, in some cases, in the Bible, we are. Before we get to the meat of the argument, I'd like to lay out three sociological factors that were at play in every ancient Near Eastern culture as a shame and honor culture. For more on this, I recommend there's three lectures given by Ben Witherington III at Queensland Theological Seminary on sociological studies of the New Testament and how they help us understand the teachings of Jesus. Uh, You can find them under the August 3rd lectures under QTS's podcast in iTunes. These three features are the three G's. In order to find your place in society, one would have asked about your generation, your genealogy, and your gender. Well, what are these three G's? First is your generation. That is, are you the firstborn? We already saw how God repeatedly subverted this consistently in the Bible last time. The consistent undermining of primogeniture, even with the laws that applied to foster it set in place, is clear throughout the Bible. Secondly is genealogy. That is, who's your daddy? Whose child are you? This was so common that people are often addressed this way and even named this way. Simon Bar-Jonah means Simon, the son of Jonah. Abimelech means my father is king. Over and over, we see patronymic language. That is language where the name identifies uh, and are derived from the name of the male ancestor. So, who's your daddy? That's genealogy. Finally, there's gender. That is, what's down under? (laughs) Are you a bird or are you a bee? Now, I don't have time here, but if you listen to Witherington's lectures, you'll see that one of the major functions of women was to protect the honor of the family. So it's not just, well, if you weren't a male, that's too bad. This is actually the real reason why there appears to be a disparity in sexual ethics between men and women. This is not because women were necessarily inferior, but rather because their role was to represent the purity of the family and thus the honor of the family. Men were to provide and protect, and women were to protect the purity. So gender mattered in an honor and shame society. So that's gender. But then along comes Jesus. And what happens to these three G's? Well, Paul handles this really eloquently in Galatians 3, where he's trying to address a supposed conflict between faith and the law. We won't get into that issue here, but we're going to look at its application and his resolution that he offers to this supposed conflicts. Paul's words are important because they help us understand the Christian obligation to the law and, more importantly here, what's entailed by it. So, in Galatians 3, starting in verse 15, he writes, To give a human example, brothers, 
even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. So in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian for and in Jesus Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. End quote. Well, that's really telling. Paul is arguing that the promise given to Abraham was first and foremost for his offspring, singular, and that is Jesus, the Christ. So if the promises and the hope of redemption are in and through Christ, then what is the purpose of the law? That is, why the law if obedience to law isn't what saves us? By the way, in Deuteronomy, Moses let the Israelites know that obedience to the law would require a new heart anyway, and that they could not obey the law without the new heart. And he told them that they didn't have it yet. So this wasn't something novel when Jeremiah predicted this, and it's not really something novel to Paul either. Well, says Paul, it was there to make us culpable, that is, to open our eyes to our inability to keep even the externals of the law. It was to show us our sin and our need for God. The law was put into place to show us that we could not even keep the externals of a law, so why should we think we could be righteous like God? It was to drive us to Christ. Okay, so he's going through this and he gets to what the outcome for us is in the promises. That is, in the ideal, in the goal, in the end game. And what is that? Is it to be bound under the law? No, it's that in Christ we are all sons of, regardless of genealogy, wealth, or gender. What does that do to the three G's? What about generation? Are any of us the firstborn? No, 
None of us are the offsprings. Remember, it's all about the offspring. Jesus is the firstborn who gets all of the inheritance, but who shares it all freely with us. So our generation doesn't matter with respect to God. What about genealogy? Who's your daddy? Does it matter if your daddy was a Jew or a Gentile, rich or poor, slave or free? No, because who's your real father? Well, God is. Do any of us in Christ have a different patronymic name? No, no. All who believe are equally children of their father in heaven. What about gender? Does it matter what your gender is if you're a George or a Georgette, a Joseph or a Josephine? No. Paul tells us that in Christ we all have all the blessings equally regardless of if you are male or female. This is the ideal. In Christ all are equally loved, equally valued, equally free. Now, as we'll see, does this mean that there are no differences between the genders? Well, no. Boys have boy parts and girls have girl parts, and we're still made with not only different body parts, but with different functions. But it's only the delusion of unflinching political correctness that wants to erase all differences in order to highlight equality, as if you must do the former in order to have the latter. So we'll explore some of the different roles of men and women, but don't confuse that with misogyny or gender inequality or what Hitchens called a hatred for the female sex. So we can see that the goal, the telos, the end game of the revelation of Jesus Christ is that men and women are both of equal importance and value in the kingdom of God. Once we understand that, we can now go back and work our way through some of the Old Testament leading up to Jesus and see how this theme is played out, sometimes overtly and sometimes subversively. This understanding of the equality of the sexes in the purpose of the kingdom of Jesus is vital to then understanding the redemptive historical aspects of the theology of womanhood that we will explore in the next few episodes. So in our next episode, we'll start going through some of the major themes in the Bible with respect to women being made in the image of God, what the wife of noble character has to tell us about the stature of women in the eyes of God in Proverbs 31, and we may have time to start looking at some of the quote-unquote misogynistic passages as well. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, email me at freedthinkerpodcast.gmail.com, or stop on by the Freedthinker Podcast group page on Facebook. Again, if you enjoy this content and would like me to be able to present more of it and more often, please consider becoming a sponsor either at patreon.com or by clicking on the Become a Sponsor Podbean link in the blog. A gift of any amount, whether $1 or $100, is greatly appreciated. Thank you again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Good night, and God bless.